0: Welcome to Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn. Archaeological data suggests the Aceh Indians lived and hunted throughout the Atlantic rainforest in eastern Paraguay for thousands of years. Now they are cornered near a shrinking region of the endangered forest, the Imbartacaju Nature Reserve. It is rich in biodiversity and hosts several species threatened with extinction. The Ache are well suited for the job of protecting the forest, but they face constant battles over the land. Salt Lake City resident Kevin Jones lived among the Aceh in the early 1980s when he was working on his Ph.D. in anthropology at the University of Utah. The experience changed his life perspective. Today on the program, Jones talks to producer Susie Montgomery about his new book inspired by the Aceh called The Shrinking Jungle.
1: I'm an anthropologist and an archaeologist, and I've been an archaeologist in this intermountain region for 30 years. And I had a great opportunity when I was in graduate school at University of Utah in the early 1980s to go to South America and live among hunter-gatherers who lived in the mountains of Paraguay. Uh, one of my colleagues was a uh, student named Kim Hill, who's now a professor at Arizona State, um, who had lived among these people as a Peace Corps volunteer and uh, had an in with them. And uh, we went down and, and did ethnographic and ethnoarchaeological work, which was what I did. And I'd never been in, in Lowland, in South America. You know, I'd never been among people like that. And the whole experience was a life-changing one for me. Meeting these people who lived until until just a few years before that, completely as hunter gatherers, uncontacted, by, by peaceful contact with the with the European world, with the with the modern world, to spend time with these people and see how they organized their lives and how they went about uh, obtaining subsistence and sheltering themselves and taking care of their kids was unbelievable to me. It was just one of the most amazing things that I ever what experienced. What exactly?
2: What year was this? And what exactly was unbelievable? It was in the
1: nineteen early nineteen eighties. Just to see the way they understood the jungle, understood the forest, uh, knew the plants and animals intimately more than I knew anything in the world, and, uh, and knew how to live there in a place that was the most, one of the most harsh places I've ever been. This was a place that, and I was a hiker and a camper and uh, outdoorsy, um, I think if, if I had been left behind by one of the bands that I was with in the forest, I would have lasted maybe the rest of the afternoon. You know, it was this is a this is a rough place.
2: <laughs> what would have gotten you? You think
1: snakes, jaguars? Uh, I wouldn't have found anything. I would have eaten the poisonous berries. I don't know. You know, it just I was as completely out of out of my element as. And I thought about this when I was in the forest, as if I had taken one of the ache and just dropped him off in the middle of a of a street in a in an urban area. Um, they wouldn't have known anything about you know, how to get around or anything like that. But this, by the same token, I was just as lost in that, in that forest. But also what really struck me was the stories of the lives of the people that I lived with. And you know, They had come from being full-time hunter-gatherers, basically in the Stone Age, and confronted directly the 20th century within their lifetimes, and had come from the Stone Age to the 20th century in a very, very short amount of time. I mean, they'd been at war with people with shotguns and rifles, and they had bows and arrows that they made out of hardwood trees and palm trees. So just the stories that they told were pretty phenomenal. And I I felt really privileged to have an opportunity to talk with people, to get to know people who who lived in this way, because all of our ancestors lived as hunter-gatherers, for many hundreds of thousands of years. I mean we are hunter gatherers. That's how we evolved. We evolved in that context. Our social organizations, our our physical skills, our abilities, our our, our spirituality, our music, our mental capacity, our social skills all evolved around a fire with other people who were getting up every morning and hunting and gathering for our subsistence. This is a way that way of life that is common to all of us for much, much longer time than we've been farming and living in houses. And so, it
2: seems that you're saying you could feel that that in yourself when you were there.
1: I, I knew it. it. It's sort of like staring into a fire. I, I mean, I've had this experience many times camping. When we sit around a fire, it doesn't matter if you're the most urban person or the most rural person. When you're out in a field and you're sitting with friends and it's night and you have a fire going, everyone is drawn to that fire your gaze goes to the fire the fire cements us together the fire the fire comforts us the fire entertains us the fire is a magnet for us mm-hmm. and that i believe is basically something that's wired into our nervous systems from many hundreds of thousands of years of that being the thing that warmed us that that helped us that that kept away bad guys and enemies and the feeling of being with people who were so close to the natural world sitting around campfires with them in the middle of the middle of the jungle the the frightening and scary jungle really struck a chord with me and really made me helped me understand that this is who we all were very very recently
0: I also had the lucky opportunity to visit the Aché and camp with them in the forest. Here's an excerpt of my report on the Guayturé Aché and their efforts to save their rainforest, their ancestral homeland. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a few early winter nights in the rainforest in eastern Paraguay with a group of 20 Aché men, women, and children, and it wasn't romantic. We ate fox, rodents, nuts, and berries, and insect larvae roasted on sticks like marshmallows. The last night, the Ache men came back to camp with two dead monkeys and an armadillo. The eldest woman chopped up the armadillo and burned the hair off the monkeys and cooked them over the small campfire. She boiled the monkey heads. Everyone shared the feast. Nothing was wasted. Even the monkey heads were licked clean, and the brains were scooped out with a twig and savored. Kim Hill, professor of anthropology at Arizona State University, has known the Ache for 30 years. He first encountered the Aceh while serving in the Peace Corps in Paraguay in 1978. Now he is their close friend and advocate.
3: You get used to it or you die, but you'd think in the middle that you're probably going to die before you get used to it because you get more and more mosquito bites, and sometimes you can have a great big scab, open pussy wound on your leg within a week of going to the forest. That started as a little tick bite and sleeping with kids crawling all over you at night. Sleep deprivation sets in and you feel exhausted after about 10 days of eating nothing but meat and insect larvae. You're like, oh my God, I can't stand another piece of meat.
0: The Aceh are especially well-suited to this environment, and in it they thrive like superheroes. Barefoot, they move swiftly through dense and prickly tick-infested terrain. The men can jog several hours a day through the forest with bows and arrows hunting wild game. A seasoned marathon runner would have a hard time keeping up. The women and young girls carry heavy hand-woven baskets filled with clothes and supplies on their backs and heads. When they find a spot to camp for the night, hours are spent sitting around a few plate-sized campfires. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> the Ache are really kind of happy-go-lucky people in their attitude. They love to joke and laugh and sing and smile all the time. I mean, there's a deeper side to them, too. It just they don't show it usually to people unless they know them really well. There's definitely cases of depression.
0: Magdalena Hurtado, professor of anthropology at Arizona State University, married Kim Hill when they were both graduate students in anthropology at the University of Utah in the early 1980s. They have three daughters who often joined them on field trips to Paraguay to live with the Aceh. Like her husband, Hurtado has dedicated her life to helping the Aceh. What I love most about
2: the Aceh is their interpersonal interactions. Their whole idea that it's really important to forgive and understand
0: others when they do things that are harmful. But the process of forgiveness is you forgive, but you also expect the other person to come completely clean. There are about 1,200 Aceh Indians living in several different villages and regions of the forest. They farm small crops including corn, peanuts, and manioc, but hunting and gathering is still a prized part of life. The Imbartica Jew Reserve is a chunk of forest about the size of Connecticut, adjacent to where the Ache live. It was established as a nature preserve in 1991 as a result of efforts sparked by Hill and Hurtado. The Ache helped protect and manage the reserve as conservationists and park guards they are the only group with legal rights to use the reserve, but only according to their traditional hunting and gathering methods. The Embarca Jew Reserve is a national jewel, but it's also a treasure chest where predators abound. The main intruders are marijuana and soy farmers, illegal hunters and poachers, loggers, and landless peasants called campesinos who try to invade the Aceh territory, sometimes igniting fierce battles that often result in one or two deaths.
3: The animals are disappearing at an incredibly rapid rate and nothing is being done about it, and nothing has been done about it for years. The reserve is supposed to be the Aceh supermarket. But when somebody leaves the door wide open to your supermarket and let Let's everybody come in and steal everything they want. You don't get anything out of it anymore, and so obviously the Ache are really unhappy about the situation.
0: The reserve is governed by the United Nations, funded by international conservation groups, and subject to international law. But Paraguay is a culture where lawlessness presides. Lucy Aquino is the director of the World Wildlife Fund in Paraguay.
1: Here is, is a culture of impunity and corruption and threats, and how can you work that way? That's why. We, as an international conservation organization, rather to work with NGOs and people from the government.
0: Back at camp, it's nightfall, and the Aceh are huddled together on the damp forest floor. Their smiling faces are lit by the soft light of the campfires. Unexpectedly, the eldest man starts singing an old traditional Aceh song. He inspired his wife to sing, too. It's an art form that's dying along with the forest. The
1: things that I experienced there were profoundly moving to me and uh, on many different levels. Intellectually, very much so, but also on other levels. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to tell those stories. I wanted to be able to come back and tell that story to my mother and to tell about these people to my neighbors. But I didn't have a very good way of doing that. And I did write uh, the scientific work that I did, which is jargony and, and very important in the, in the scientific sense, but not readable by a regular person. I could have written a tried to write a, a, a typical ethnography, which is sort of a descriptive way of writing about people those tend to not be real readable either. They, they tend to be uh, sort of like you know a, a report on the, the way the so-and-so do something, and those are not very exciting. And I couldn't think of any better way to do it, so I just started making up a, a fictitious band, you know, using kind of the characters and the people that I knew, and trying to write a, a, a story of the way they lived and, and some of their stories in the context of a, of a fictional bunch of characters. So
2: who's the main character in your book?
1: main character is a kid. main character is a kid named Catfish. He's about a nine-year-old boy. I can tell you why the main character is a boy, a a nine-year-old boy, because when I was among the Ache, I hung out with the kids a whole lot. Um, I was in my 30s, but I hung out with the kids a whole lot because the kids, well, kids are not all tied up and don't have busy things to do all day, like watch other kids or go out and, and hunt and so forth. And kids are very tolerant of people who don't speak the language very well. They, they're they very accepting. So I learned a whole lot from the kids. I hung out with the kids, and I really enjoyed them, and I made very good friends with, with young boys and young girls. And um,
2: Were they different from other 9-year-old boys, let's say?
1: I felt that if I, I had been interjected into that situation when I was 9 years old, I would have been exactly like those kids. Uh, in fact, I felt the whole time that, the way of life of these people any of us would be that way if we were in that circumstance they were doing the thing that uh, any of us would do if we had the skills and the and and the knowledge uh, to to live in that circumstance and it's not told from his perspective but he's really the one that we follow throughout and his his family his little nuclear family his parents and they're all based on people i know i'm real happy with the way it turned out where'd you
2: get the name catfish
1: well, all Ache are, for, for an uh, are named for an animal. All Ache are named for an animal that their mother prepared uh, for, for a meal sometime while she was pregnant with them. And for some reason, that animal stuck out in her mind. That, that was a significant, either a significant event happened or there was some significance to it. And she chose, she chooses that name for her child um, so they all, every, everyone has a, an animal name, and, and it, they, they actually have a suffix that's attached to the, to the animal name, so you know that you're not just talking about a catfish, but you're talking about the boy named Catfish. And it's,
2: what's your Ache name?
1: Kregi, and it's uh, for a kind of armadillo. They just decided when I was down there that that should be my name, so.
0: In fact, the Aceh gave me a name too, Jakugi, which means wild turkey, and I had a similar experience with the children. They were my happy guides.
1: The story starts with a, an event that, that I, I heard about happening um, that happened in the in the 1960s at some point in which an Aceh band is attacked early in the morning by a bunch of uh, peasant farmers. And they've somehow tracked this band into the forest and surrounded them and attacked the band and, and killed some of them. And the rest of the band ran off into the forest. They've lost everything. They've lost all of their... Belongings, and they've just gotten away with their lives, and so the band of about twenty-five people has to reconstitute itself. They they have to they have to you know gather themselves together and uh, recreate their technology. So they have to rebuild what they had and find a new place to uh, to hunt and and to live. And so we follow them through that the course of rebuilding their lives. And so in the course of that, I tell you how they make their mats, how they make their bows, how they build their, their houses when they build houses, how they, how they organize their camps and things, which is one of the things I wanted to try to do is sort of explain those things, how they did things.
2: So it doesn't get lost forever kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and I tried to make it in a, in a way that, it, that it's integral to the story so that it's not just a, a dry description of how to build a shelter in the jungle. But, I mean, if, if you're interested in how Aceh builds shelters, it's in the book.
2: So I find this really interesting. So are you a scientist first, a musician second, an author third? And what inspired you to delve into storytelling? Um, This is your first novel, published novel. Is that right? Yes. It's not your first publication. I worked with you in the late 90s, and as a volunteer, I was working with you on a really oversized, glossy, full-color interactive magazine, science magazine for kids, that also was accompanied by a TV series similar to Nickelodeon-style TV series. Um, Since I've known you, you've been an incredibly innovative uh, guy who's really committed to storytelling. At the time, you were the state archaeologist, and you were not typical, I would say. Why is these stories coming out of you? Where do they come from?
1: I'm I'm real curious about the world, and the way I understand things in the world is as as they relate to other things, as they're part of uh, part and parcel of something. So, if I'm learning about any one thing, I don't just learn about that thing it, in itself. I learn about you know its place in geography and time and 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 other things, and that lends to filling it in as a story. The the richness of Everything has a story, even if it's a rock. Where does this rock come from? Well, you know, and there is a long history to that. I think that it, it stems from my curiosity, but also part of it is related to my desire to tell this story. I find the world to be a very interesting place. I'm just I'm enthralled by almost everything, and I like sharing that. And so I like helping to bring some of those those things that so uh, excite me to others. So I enjoy writing uh, especially for kids especially for young people i really enjoy writing about the archaeology that i do i find the archaeology that i that i've done through my life extraordinarily interesting unfortunately in some ways when you're a, a scientist a lot of the ways that you report on the stuff that you do is not real interesting unless you know a whole lot about it science is filled with jargon and a special language that that we use, scientists use to talk to each other. It, it doesn't mean we're not excited about what we're what we're talking about. We are, but we're we're telling a story that's only accessible to a small number of people who who have that same background and all that information that you do. But there are a lot of other people who are interested in in the archaeology as well. And I need to be able to write it for them if I want to tell them about it. So I write it, you write it in a different way. That's all. You change the language. You change how you describe things a little bit. Uh, doesn't make it any less scientific or valuable. But I think that, uh, for one thing, I mean, in writing for kids and talking about doing Zinge magazine and Zinge Zing TV, I think a lot of what people have done for kids uh, in terms of educational stuff about science is right down to them. They oversimplify and make, and make science silly. And I don't think that's the way to learn things. I don't think you learn by anything by making it silly. But you can write about things in ways that make it interesting and fun and uh, and I have fun learning and I have fun writing about things that I learn about. I love writing. Uh, I'm not sure I'm the best writer in the world but I'm an enthusiastic writer.
2: So I, I brought up scientist the musician and now author um, goes beside your name. Are you going to continue writing and are you going to continue science, music and writing and in what capacity?
1: Um, I think I'm condemned to do all those things? Uh, I don't think I can get away from them very easily. I love playing music. I've always played music, whether I play in a band or I'm just sitting on my back porch playing and uh, singing for my dogs. But um, I'll always do that. And and writing, I've always written, like any published author. Um, I have trunks full of notebooks, full of stuff that I've scribbled down over the years and written down. Lots of it is meaningless to anyone but me. But I'm sort of compulsive about that and I'm a compulsive note taker and a, and a story writer and I continue to write fiction and I continue to write nonfiction and I continue to write songs and play songs and having a pretty big old time working on all those things.
2: Because you started your book right after your ethnographic sort of experience in, in Paraguay and you just published it
1: came out in uh, October 2012. I really completed this novel in its in its basic form in uh, 1988. I actually tried for a little while to, to get it published at the time I, I sent it around to a few publishers and agents and really didn't get uh, any real interest in it. Um, I took a new job had a, had a child sort of just set it on the shelf for a real long time. And um, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I was talking with uh, one of the editors at University of Utah Press and, uh, and told her about the book, and she said, well, send it to me, and we'll we'll see. If I'll be glad to take a look at it, and did, and had it reviewed and, and got good positive responses to it, so she decided to publish it, so I'm very happy about that.
2: There's some really serious issues happening to the Aceh in Paraguay right now in terms of a land struggle. Can you just talk to that and how the publishing of this book is actually quite timely with perhaps the demise of the entire culture
1: well the ache people didn't go away when i stopped you know working with them ethnographically in fact kim hill continues to go down and work with them and has now for 30 some years but they're struggling they they came out of the forest as uh, second class citizens and were treated poorly by the locals and had no land they had no you know they had no inheritance they had no way of knowing how to deal with the the modern world and gradually they've been trying to uh, establish themselves and they've you know they've organized somewhat and um, have tried to obtain some land that they could use in a traditional way and they have they just just recently in 2012 the government granted them granted the tribe a deed to a fairly substantial piece of land of their traditional traditional land there's been lots of controversy since then there are uh, local campesinos, squatters who've been trying to use that land. There's potential for armed conflict, so there's there's a lot of tension in the area of uh, competition for the for the traditional hunting lands of the of the Ache, and they are working with some some companies. One of them is called Guayaquil, which makes herbal teas and especially yerba mate, which is a traditional drink of, of Paraguay, and they're growing shade grown, natural, organic. Uh, yerba mate on the Ache lands and Ache are helping to harvest it and and cure it and, and sell it so there is an opportunity for economic development for them but their lands are being threatened they're in a tough spot right now and uh I'm I'm hoping maybe that by publishing this book, I can at least raise the conversation up a little bit, let people know that this situation is transpiring, and maybe there's some ways that uh, we can draw some attention to it and and help out a little bit. Mm
2: -hmm. This seems like, you know, it's a smaller story of the Aceh group, but it's analogous to so many situations across the world of people fighting for traditional land and traditional lifestyle. So I feel like... You know, it it joins a bigger conversation. And most people haven't heard of the Aceh, but...
1: It's a story that's repeated over and over again everywhere in the world. And and what's compounding it in in this area is the deforestation that comes along with the uh, modern incursion into that forest. And many of the forests that I traveled with the Aceh in and foraged in in the early 1980s are no longer forests anymore. have been cut down and turned into pasture land or farmland. So that whole ecosystem is dramatically altered by human hands, and it's part of the ongoing uh, deforestation of the tropics. In, in many ways, it's a large-scale ecological disaster that's going on, uh, but it's also very understandable. I mean, those, those trees aren't being cut down really by multinational corporations. They're being cut down one at a time by uh, uh, people who are trying to build a, you know, grow, grow a garden and feed their children. So it's uh you know it's not something that's easily easily understood or fought politically. There's a lot of competition for the land and, and there there probably always will be. Um, I'm hoping the HH can maintain some lands that they can use collectively and help to provide an economic base for themselves because they're they've been there forever and and have used that land very well for many, many thousands of years. I hope they can continue to have a little bit of a a, a say in how the land is used.
2: You would say that you have an emotional tie to this group. Yeah, I do
1: have an attachment to them. They're they're people I know. I have a personal connection. Mm-hmm. And I do care about their their well-being. I do care about their, their economic and physical health. And, uh, and I want to see them move into the modern world in a way that doesn't completely destroy them. Mm-hmm.
2: What did you learn about yourself um, through writing this book or even your experience with them? Other than maybe the fact that you can't survive in every environment without a little bit of time and practice.
1: I think you learn about yourself by putting yourself into in situations that are different than the ones that you're accustomed to. I think I think we grow by traveling, um, and by traveling, and I don't necessarily just mean going places, but I mean seeing different places and experiencing different places, and 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 meeting people who who live. And look at the world in very different ways than you do. Uh, I think we learn more about ourselves doing that um, than in almost any anything that we can do. I think travel and living among other people is the best cure for uh, ethnocentrism and bigotry that we can have. I think the people who, who stay in one place all their lives and, and hate people who are not like them could learn a lot by just simply going going a short ways and meeting somebody who's a little bit different than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps us not draw lines around around things. And it helps us also to understand that our way isn't the best, necessarily. You know, everybody thinks their their stuff's the best, but it's it's pretty enlightening to know that uh, your way of doing things is merely one of an untold number of ways of, of doing that very thing. So.
2: You know, I, I just remember a story you once telling me... Um, and as you say, going into f- foreign places and trying to sort of adapt and learn from different perspectives and how people, different, different people live. And at that time you, you were doing that, um, you had quite a major accident that has, has almost become, as a musician, has, has, you've had to overcome the losing of your thumb. Can you tell that story?
1: It was one of my trips in Paraguay, yeah. We were in a, a bad car crash in, uh, in rural Paraguay our vehicle sideswiped a bus going in the opposite direction and we rolled down the middle of the road and and my hand was basically torn to shreds, my right hand. And um we had to hitchhike into town and find a find a hospital and, and, and did finally eventually. It was a land Toyota Land Cruiser station wagon and I crawled out of the upside down car through the windshield and I felt something kind of dangling. And I looked down and it was a big chunk of my hand that had been ripped off from the rest of it and was just hanging by some strings and things. I thought, oh, geez, that's not very good. <laughs> and a lady was standing nearby who'd gotten off the bus that we'd hit and handed me a cloth and wrapped it up. And uh,
2: Thumb included? Yeah,
1: yeah, all, all the all the parts.
0: Jones and Heal were then offered a ride to the hospital by a Paraguayan man in the area. Their misfortune was not over yet.
1: I started feeling hot, and uh, I thought, oh, this isn't good. I'm not not feeling that well. And then I realized there were fumes coming up uh, through the floorboards, and I said, I I think your car's on fire. And uh, he had to stop the car, and there were some wires that were on fire in the car, so they had to put the fire out.
0: Jones eventually made it to the hospital and had to return to the States early to mend his wounds. Kevin Jones was the state of Utah archaeologist for 20 years, and he continues to work in the field and play music.
1: The appeal of the book is that you learn about people in a culture that's different from ours, but also you learn about something that's not that's not going to be around very much longer—the the hunter-gatherer way of life—and it's something that's common to all of us. Uh, it's common to all of our ancestors. For many hundreds of thousands of years, we lived as hunter-gatherers, so it's. It's a way to uh, learn about that. And, and for better or for worse, I experienced that life way with these people. I didn't just make this up. I mean, there are a lot of people who have written, written books about cavemen and things like that, but they just made it all up. It's all made up. This one, warts and all, this is what living like a hunter-gatherer is like. And uh, I'm pretty happy with the way the story came out. So. Well,
2: congratulations on the publication of That's this easy. book. Uh, thanks. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah.
0: Special thanks to Susie Montgomery for bringing us this interview.
4: Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Support for Science Questions comes from the College of Science at Utah State University, where students step beyond the classroom, participating in advanced research in the lab, field, and outer space. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu slash science.
0: Welcome to Science Questions. I am Sherry Quinn. And I am Susie Montgomery. In the modern day where the Western diet has led to epidemics of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, a group of researchers are revisiting a Stone Age recipe that has us eating like cavemen, restricted to animal protein and plants. No grains, legumes, dairy products, and certainly nothing processed. Basically, if early humans didn't eat it, you shouldn't either.
5: When you talk about the word paleo, It evokes uh, Fred Flintstone and and Barney Rubble.
0: Lauren Cordain is professor of health and exercise science at Colorado State University and considered founder of the primal health movement called the Paleo Diet, named after the Paleolithic era beginning roughly 2.5 million years ago and ending about 10,000 years ago. This popular modern version seeks to mimic the diet of pre-agricultural hunter-gatherers,
5: I don't expect that everybody in the world is going to understand this concept or even have heard of it. Uh, This is an eclectic concept that has evolved uh, from nutritionists, from anthropologists, and physicians. So the concept has become very, very big, and in the scientific literature, it's just starting to emerge.
2: The diet is sparking controversy and curiosity, as well as attracting converts across the world. Cordain and the Paleo Diet have become so popular, he gets upwards of 300,000 hits a day on Google, second only to another famous professor with an office down the hall, Temple Grandin, whom you might remember redesigned livestock slaughterhouses for the more humane treatment of cattle. It is always surprising to a scientist when their work goes viral.
5: I never really set out to become the world's expert. I was, it was very selfish. I just wanted to find out what the best diet was for me on a personal level. And so that was really my motivation. I would do this whether I were famous or got published or wrote books or not. It just, it's just, it's my passion.
2: Cordain was a popular attendee at the first Everell Ancestral Health Symposium at UCLA, featuring the latest research on the Paleolithic diet. He described it as the woodstock of evolutionary medicine. Aside from the presenting scientists, about 300 people showed, many of which were Western yogis and fitness gurus. It was L.A. after all. This new research suggests hunter and gatherers were healthier than the ancient farmers who began to eat processed grain about 10 to 15,000 years ago, according to the archaeological record. One of the most well-known anthropologists studying this is Mark Nathan Cohen, also at the symposium and who has been a great influence on cordain.
5: He was able to show that if you look at the skeletal remains of hunter gatherers and then just as they made the transition to early farmers um, their skeletons showed that they were much uh, they were very unhealthy, they were shorter, they lost on average 5 to 6 inches, they developed bone mineral problems and and other pathologies that can be inferred from diet. So Part of the problem is is that they went from eating tremendous diversity of wild plant and animal foods to eating staples like cereal grains, which are nutritional lightweights compared to wild plant and animal foods. The most problematic of the cereal grains is
2: wheat, according to Cordain. And what was once called the USDA food pyramid is now called MyPlate. And this program recommends six servings of grains per day. Half should be whole grains
5: that is is a very poor recommendation for 1% of the population who has celiac disease. And so uh, eating wheat uh, causes symptoms in celiac patients. So 1% of the population um, may not sound like much, but we have 300 million people in the U.S., so it turns out to be a, a substantial number. And even more importantly... Uh, what we're finding now is gluten sensitivity. Besides paleo, the other really hot topic in diet is gluten-free. And so it turns out about 20% of the U.S. population has gluten sensitivity, meaning that they have a variety of, of symptoms and illnesses when they eat wheat. And so that's why the gluten-free products have exploded across the United States and uh, and actually worldwide. Cereal grains not only... Are responsible for celiac disease, but we also suspect that they 're responsible for a variety of other autoimmune diseases because they contain a substance that increases intestinal permeability, and it does so not just in celiacs but in, in so called normals as well so uh, and, and the other issue with grains that I have is that uh, they 're nutritional lightweights if you compare them. On a calorie by calorie basis, to either fresh fruits, vegetables, lean meats, or seafood, they come come in last. And so, I, for the life of me, can't understand, except that they're cheap, why our government is, through its My Plate program, is promoting uh, the consumption of a food that produces nutritional deficiencies and can cause actual ill health in many people.
2: of people in the U.S. have one or more symptoms of either type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or hypertension, basically high blood cholesterol, and high triglycerides. Cordain's research shows, too, that certain types of cancer, epithelial cell cancers like breast, colon, and prostate cancer, are linked to diet. All of these ailments are components of the metabolic syndrome, says Cordain.
5: Anecdotally, what we find is that people with the metabolic syndrome their symptoms seem to fade away. Hypertension, dyslipidemia, all of these characteristic symptoms of insulin resistance fade away on the paleo diet. And one of the most thrilling factors that has come about in the last 10 years since people have been doing this is that people with autoimmune disease seem to uh, improve and even go into complete remission. So diseases that at one time were thought to be completely non-controllable have uh, shown uh, some really good effects with paleo diets, and so that's what we're we're doing right now. My graduate students and I, we've got an ongoing study, and it's a a large case study in which we have close to 100 people with autoimmune disease that have gone into either complete remission or partial remission from following this. And so we have their personal medical records that we are compiling, and uh, so this is this is one of the thrilling parts of this. And so we think that as I mentioned earlier, is that wheat uh, is uh, very problematic in autoimmune disease because it causes a leaky gut in many people. And we think that that's one of the triggering factors in genetically susceptible people with autoimmune disease is if their intestines become leaky. And so, you know, wheat is people like to eat sandwiches and crackers and cookies and bagels and cereal and this for breakfast and whatever. So um, there's a behavioral component to it, but uh, there are hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people that have adopted the paleo diet worldwide. And uh, I don't think that they have a problem. To me, a slice of bread or versus a bowl of fresh blackberries, there's no, no comparison. I'd much rather eat a bowl of fresh blackberries any day than eating a piece of bread.
0: Cordain has done extensive and well-respected research on hunter-gatherer diets. One of his more well-known studies looked at their diet and acne. To determine whether hunter-gatherers suffered from acne, Cordain teamed up with husband and wife anthropology duo Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado, who are famous in the field for their long-time research of about 30 years on one of the last remaining hunter-gatherer groups, living in the Paraguay forest, the Ache. (laughs) This is the sound of Aceh elders performing one of their traditional songs around a small campfire. Kim Hill introduced me to them in 2006. I had the rare fortune to spend several weeks living with the Aceh, deep in the remote Atlantic rainforest, experiencing the hunter-gatherer diet firsthand, complete with fox, rodents, armadillo, nuts, berries, even monkey brains and insect larvae, larvae the size of stuffed green olives that I ate roasted like a marshmallow, dripping off a stick. Diseases such as obesity and diabetes are quite new to this society and are not uncommon. The traditional Ache diet also prevented acne. During the course of Hill and Hurtado's two-year acne study, they did not find a single case of acne among the Ache, nor did Cordain among the Catawban Islanders.
5: They live uh, in this island in the South Pacific off the coast of Papua New Guinea. And there's about 3,000 of them, and uh, there was uh, 250 to 300 teenagers in that group. And once again, not a single uh, teenager or person in the population had acne. And so we suggested in a paper in 2002 in the Archives of Dermatology uh, that indeed it was their diet that was common to both the the Ache in Paraguay and the Catawans uh, that prevented them from developing acne, even in their teenagers. If you were to round up 300 teenagers in the United States, about 85 to 90 percent of them would have acne. So we didn't find a single case. And then, really, the uh, the proof of the pudding. I wrote a couple more papers mechanistically on how we believe diet actually caused acne, and was invited to some prestigious international conferences to present our work. And the proof of the pudding was uh, in 2000. And Six, A paper was published by my colleague, Neil Mann, from uh, Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and they actually put a group of adolescents with acne on a, a diet that mimics certain characteristics of hunter-gatherer diets, and lo and behold, the acne went away. There are two suspects,
2: the high glycemic load and a popular dairy product.
5: Milk does a number of things. It also spikes insulin levels, but it contains hormones that uh, many people, including The research group at Harvard believe uh, is responsible for acne because they think that the hormones in cow's milk cross the gut barrier and influence our own hormones. So it comes down to Western diet, and hunter-gatherers don't drink milk or eat dairy products, and they don't have processed foods, so their diet tends to have a, a low glycemic load generally.
2: Craig Stanford, Professor of Biology and Anthropology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, also attended the Ancestral Health Symposium at UCLA to present on the meat-eating behaviors of wild chimpanzees and on the meat-eating habits of our ancestors. At the conference, Stanford was the lonely skeptic, admonishing the paleo-dieters that revisiting this paleolithic era isn't a blanket solution.
4: Laura Cordain is a great scholar, and he did some great work about 10 years ago looking at the diets of different hunter-gatherer groups in the world, and he found that they had pretty similar intake of, of protein and fiber and so forth. But nevertheless, um, you know, I think most scholars would say that the human diet, there's no single monolithic human diet, and when people approach their own personal lives and their own personal diet and health in that simplistic a way, then you know, they're bound, they're bound to, to, to either fail or just eat something that's unnecessary for them to eat.
5: I think that... Uh... The, the paleo diet sometimes has been criticized because it eliminates two food groups. It eliminates grains and dairy. But in the same manner, the food pyramid or the my plate recommends uh, that you can eat a nutritionally adequate uh, vegan diet. Well, a vegan diet also excludes at least two food groups. It excludes dairy and it excludes meat. And that is, uh, to my way of thinking, a really unhealthy diet is a vegan-type diet.
4: I think the idea that eating a lot of lean meat is perfectly fine, which is something that paleo dieters would, would advocate, I think there's a mountain of medical evidence that links meat to all sorts of ailments, including cancers. And it's really indisputable. And there are books out there arguing against that, I, I know, but the mountain of evidence is that you, know, if, you know, if you want to uh, really enhance your health, if you want to ward off cancer potentially, then being a vegan, for instance, is is a very, very healthy way to live. And that's something that, when I was at the conference at UCLA, in fact, some of the speakers would would joke about veganism and vegetarianism. They'd raise that as a kind of a a, a practical joke topic, and the audience would cheer and jeer. And I just thought that was kind of bizarre, given what we know about the value of eating a plant-based diet. The problem with eating meat or eating eggs is not just eating them by themselves. The problem is that in our modern world, you can go to the market and you can buy and eat eggs and meat and so forth in bizarrely huge quantities compared to what our ancestors did. So to be a paleo diet advocate and say, well, eating lean grass-fed beef is a really great thing. It should be in everybody's diet. That might be fine, but you have to remember that foraging people, most foraging people, traditionally, historically, have only been able to get meat fairly rarely. And so they're living on a pretty low protein diet for the most part. And... uh, that's something that we forget when we say, oh, yeah, let's, let's, let's practice a paleo diet. We also forget when we go to the market and buy eggs that ancient people only could get eggs for a few weeks every spring. So they would gorge on eggs, and they wouldn't suffer any cholesterol or heart issues because then the eggs weren't laid anymore. The wild birds stopped nesting, and there weren't any eggs until the following spring. Of course, now we have eggs whenever we want them, and that's really the problem. My own feeling, just based on chatting with paleo diet advocates, uh, is that there are a lot of folks in the paleo diet movement who simply love beef, and they really want to find a rationale that allows them to go out and grill their steak. And this offers them that rationale, and they believe in eating lean meat, and they believe in not eating it too often. But I, I think that to some extent it's driven not just by science, as is the case for every diet out there. It's not driven just by science. It's driven by what people want to do when they fit the science into their belief system and into their, their particular palate and, and what they like to eat. You know, I'm not a a medical researcher, but all I can say is that when you look at the literature that's out there, you can find hundreds of studies advocating a plant-based diet. And you can also find studies advocating a diet that's not so strongly plant-based. You can find diets like the paleo diet that advocate eating plenty of lean meat and so forth. So there are hundreds of studies out there. And, of course, people come along and say my new study disproves the earlier one. And all we can say today, if you want to take a rational approach, is that the preponderance of evidence, the mountain of evidence today, is that a plant-based diet is the healthiest diet.
2: Though Stanford is clearly not a big fan of the paleo diet, he and Cordain see eye to eye when it comes to curbing the American propensity to gorge on bad food.
5: In America, we're suffering not diseases of under consumption we're suffering from diseases of overconsumption. two-thirds of the population is obese or overweight and so most middle class americans can afford to eat whatever they like and those are the people that uh, are unfortunately sick and overweight and have diseases of insulin resistance so uh, they certainly could make changes by making dietary changes And I think health care costs could be significantly reduced if people uh, uniformly adopted a diet that was composed of fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meats and they avoided processed foods.
4: There's a kernel of of truth there that's really valuable, which is that we should be avoiding processed foods and we should be avoiding a lot of the junk and, and the extreme caloric intake that we put in our bodies these days. However, these people who go around promoting the paleo diet I believe, as somebody who studies human evolution, take an extremely simplistic view of what early humans were all about and what their diets were all about. So, for instance, just the idea that there is a natural, single, ancient human diet is is silly. So, if you ask a paleo diet um, advocate or scholar about what that really means, they'll say, well, it means whatever people were eating before agriculture and before livestock is what we ought to be eating today. So, no dairy no grains, no breads, etc. But, of course, we really don't know exactly what time period we're going to talk about if we try to nail down when the, quote, natural diet happened. Was it 10,000 years ago before agriculture began? Was it 100,000 years ago? Was it 500,000 or a million years ago? At each stage of the, of, of the human evolutionary scope, there would have been uh, variable diets. People were eating different things. If you looked at people living on the seacoast, versus people living in the forest or in the mountains, of course, they would be eating very different diets. So when people say you should be eating a paleo diet, my response is, which paleo diet are you talking about? And how many paleo diets were there? And which time period and which which species of early human are we trying to base our dietary recommendations on?
2: For Cordain, sticking to a diet of lean meat, vegetables, fruits, nuts, and seeds, no matter how you slice it, produces healthy results.
5: My wife and I have been doing this probably longer than anybody on the planet except for hunter-gatherers. <laughs> we did—we were doing it since the early 90s. At the time when I first adopted it, I was in my late 30s and I was a runner and I noticed that my uh, endurance seemed to increase and muscle tone. My wife is a triathlete. She also noticed a lot of you know, therapeutic uh, effects. Um, and I think that you have to be open-minded and, and look at the facts. When I say that the paleo diet is more nutritionally dense than any diet out there, whether it's the food pyramid, my plate, the Mediterranean diet, Japanese diet. It's it's a much more nutrient-dense um, diet, and we've published two papers on that in the scientific mm-hmm. literature. Anybody can look
4: at the data. Here's the problem with any of these diets. Whether we're talking about paleo diet, veganism, Atkins diet, South Peach diet, you know, you name it, is there's a certain level of irrationality that goes into the diets that people choose, if you, if you want to uh, stick to a, a healthy diet, then you have to take rational approaches. And when it becomes a religion for you, you know, when you say, well, I'm a vegan, so I never eat this, or I never eat that, or I'm a paleo dieter, so I only eat this or that, well, that, that becomes a little bit irrational. I mean, I, I live in Southern California. I go out every day driving, and I see people, you know, running along the side of a freeway where they're inhaling polluted air which is terrible for them. They've increased their respiratory rate by running, and then they're taking in more pollutants. And then they go home and they start obsessing about the diet that they're eating. So we all take kind of an irrational approach. We kind of create a private little theory about what's best for us. And I I use the term we're 7 billion nutritionists in the world today. We all have our reasons, whether they're religious, family tradition, or something we've read that we should eat a certain way. And, of course, you know, it's easy to take it beyond the point of rationality. What I recommend is eating a rational diet. And what I mean by that is don't get religious. about. I mean, I don't believe in being religious about anything in life, including religion. So don't get religious about what you eat. Don't think, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. You know, it kind of goes back to to your grandmother's advice of eating a balanced diet. If you eat a balanced diet and you avoid processed foods, that's something we should avoid. We should avoid all of these foods that are packed with sugars and chemicals and so forth to, to kind of addict us to buy more. If you avoid those kinds of foods... Uh, then you're going to be fine, and you know we're we're evolved to be a very very plastic species. You know, we're a generalist species in terms of our diet. We we live in all sorts of different habitats historically. We we do just fine in all those different places. And so people were eating a varied diet uh, as far back as we can as we can find in the fossil record.
5: I really don't know why this concept is controversial because it's it's simply it's factual. has nothing to do with me or anybody else. It's just look at the data and see how it, it applies out. So that's the frustrating part is that, you know, when you have a correct answer to a complex diet health-related question, it should be considered.
4: There are plenty of foods out there that when paleo dieters say, don't eat so much dairy, don't eat so much grain, that they've got a good point. These are not foods that Uh, We we evolved to eat, just as cows did not evolve to eat corn. And when you feed it to them in large quantities in in these um, feedlots, they get really sick uh, and need antibiotic treatment. Um, And that's what grass-fed beef is supposed to avoid. In the same way, we shouldn't be eating a lot of the foods that we eat. You do have to remember one thing, which is that historically, evolutionarily, humans evolved to live long enough to reproduce and then a little bit more than that. We didn't evolve uh, to live to be 80 or 90 years old. Most of the diseases that affect us, that are diet-caused, whether it's heart disease or cancer, they hit us mainly after we're done reproducing when we're in our 60s, 70s, and beyond. So from an evolutionary standpoint, humans can eat practically any diet at all, uh, and they can, they can do just fine. And in Darwinian terms, the name of the game is surviving to maturity, reproducing successfully, and then whatever happens beyond that is just, is just icing. So in a sense... I think the fuss over what you're eating is really misplaced because we didn't, as a species, evolve to eat a particular diet with the goal of living to be 80 or 90. Today, that's our goal, and that's really a goal that is way beyond the realm of natural selection because it's all happened so, so recently that we're actually thinking about living to be 90 years old. Historically, we just didn't. It wasn't an issue. Since
0: we are living beyond our years, it's certainly not a bad idea to eat well. For myself, that means eating paleo at least on weekdays. So far, I have not regretted it, and according to Lauren Cordain, once you try it, you never go back.
5: I just think that uh, people ought to give it a try and uh, do it for two weeks, see how, how you feel. Most people feel so rotten after if they go paleo for two weeks and then they say, "Ah, oh, I'm just craving a donut, and they go out and they eat a donut, it makes them feel so bad they don't want to do it again. I think that's one reason why people stay, stick with it is that they feel so good.
0: Science Questions is produced by Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Thank you for listening.
4: I tell you this, I think that I started getting 8 email the next day. I just, I, I got up and, well, you want, to, you want me to add something else here? This is funny. If You want you want to record this and we'll do one other yeah. little bit? Yeah. Okay. So I gave a, this talk at UCLA and I got up and pointed out that when paleo dieters say you should go to the market and you should live out of the produce section and the meat section and avoid the other parts of the market. And I pointed out that if you look at what, wild chimpanzees eat, they're eating a very high fruit diet, and yet they're fruits that we would never call them sweet. You'd have trouble getting it past your lips because they are not sweet. You'd probably throw up if you tried to eat them. And in the same way, the foods that we buy in the market, when you go to the market and buy kale or, or Brussels sprouts or broccoli, those foods do not resemble nutritionally uh, their ancestors, that our ancestors were eating, because they're packed with sugar these days. Farmers know that people like to eat sweet, tasty greens. And so even greens that don't seem sweet to us, let's say kale, are intensely sweet compared to their ancestors. And I gave this talk at the Paleo Diet Conference and oh, people got very upset because I think they felt that when they go to the market and buy greens, they're basically replacing an ancient diet with a modern diet that's very equivalent and it simply is not. Oh my gosh. Okay, there you go, yeah. But I got hate mail saying I was totally wrong and yada yada and then I went and asked colleagues of mine who do nutrition, whether I was right or not. and They also, of course, these modern plants, you know, look at corn. Corn was like, you know, about an inch long, its ancestors, right? Now it's this big, sweet, tender thing, and they just don't resemble their, their ancestors. So now, obviously the paleo dieters advocating a diet that's way healthier than those people who are out there eating just junk food.